You're listening to 100 p.m. episode 38. You're listening to 100 p.m., the show where we're interviewing 100 expert product people from startups to enterprise and everything in between to bring you all the actionable advice you need to succeed in product management. Today, I'm talking to Wade Johnston, Senior Product Manager at Civis Analytics. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com, the web's fastest growing resource for product management topics, recommended resources, and online learning. I'm Susanna Bate, product coach, startup mentor, and host of today's show. Let's dive right in and say hello to Wade Johnston. Hi, I'm Wade Johnston. I work at Civis Analytics as a senior product manager here. What is Civis Analytics? Civis Analytics is a software and solutions company focused on data science. So we have two parts of the business. One is a data science software platform, and the other is a solutions group, so data science consultants that uh, solve business problems with data science. Uh, Data science is a, a topic that comes up a lot. I mean, especially now in this, everyone wants to be, you know, data-driven, data-driven. So I want to dive in deeply. I feel like we're speaking in alliterations of this whole, <laughs> because even when you said Civis Analytics, I thought that sounds like we're about to, to go into a, a tongue twister or something. Let's start uh, back in your career. We'll, we'll jump to present day. You were at Nielsen. Yep. And tell us, uh, first of all, for our audience, maybe they don't know what is Nielsen. Yeah, Nielsen is... I think the world's largest market research company. So they have offices and products across 103 countries, or at least they did when I was there 18 months ago. And they measure grocery sales uh, as well as doing the TV ratings. So the TV ratings, the Nielsen family, that's what everybody knows them for. The larger part of the business is actually tracking grocery sales that are sold through your Safeways and Jewels and Dominic's and then selling that money, selling that data to the Procter and Gamble's and Kroger, or sorry, Procter and Gamble's and Crafts and those kind of companies. Uh, we track cigarette sales, Coca-Cola sales all across the world, and they package that up and give insights to those large CPG companies. Right, like I'm sure they've been around for what, like a hundred years, Nielsen. Uh, I think yeah, 1930s or something <laughs> like that. So it's been a while. So they're they're kind of like the original data company. I would think so. I think they'd be happy to take that title. Uh, Congratulations, Nielsen, <laughs> on being the original data company. Uh, yeah, Arthur Nielsen started off you know, counting market share. So I'm not sure if he absolutely invented the concept, but he certainly commercialized it first. He sent out auditors to the different corner stores and the different grocery chains that were starting up and literally counted the stores and then used statistical methods to estimate total sales within the United States to start with. And very quickly got to uh, London and then other international markets. Do you think that that was something people had asked for, or he just thought, "I want"? I started by doing this, and then realized I could probably leverage it. I'm going to get all this data, then I'm going to knock on the door and say, "Do you want this data?" I guess I need to bone up on my history of Nielsen (laughs) here, Suzanne. Um, I don't know. I, I think, from what I understand of the history of it, they started relatively small. Uh, They started with just grocery sales, uh, and then that took off pretty quickly. And they rode the wave, if you think of the, you know, getting into the history, but if you think <laughs> about the you know, the post-40s and 50s, the great brands, the advertising, the TV, all of those kind of 
factors came together and, and Nielsen was right there along, along with them. So, you know, the great brands of say 10 years ago were all Tide and you know, Kraft Cheese and all those kind of pieces. And, and Nielsen rode that wave along alongside them. Yeah. So in, in many ways, because I think we're, we're so obsessed with data right now, this is the word, it's everywhere, it's big data, and you've got to be a data-driven product team. And, and you do, and, and we'll talk about that certainly. But I guess, because product management, one of the other things we talk about is, you know, product management was brand management originally. It was the early days of saying, well, let's fight for our original line extension. Well, yeah, the, some of the, the earlier earliest job titles that were a product manager was at Procter & Gamble as the product manager for the major brands, right? right. Or as the product manager for Tide or you'd be the product manager for something else. So, yeah. So, so I guess what I'm less than the history of Nielsen, though, you did a very good job. I know I put you on the spot is it's interesting to think about how companies were leveraging data, the available data for a lot of years before kind of ad tech showed up, before all of these analytics platforms, before Civis, which isn't a very old company. Talk to us about your relationship to data. I mean, are you yourself a data person or you just like hanging out with data people? Yeah, I like hanging out with data people. We've got plenty of them here. Um, I'm not a data scientist. I don't program in Python or R or understand the algorithms that we use. But my journey into it was, I was, my first product job was actually managing products for an underfloor heating company. So it was a electric cables that go on the floor and heat bathroom tiles. And I love those companies for existing. They're amazing. Um, and the, I was lucky enough that the manager, the hiring manager at Nielsen saw beyond just the, the content knowledge or the subject matter knowledge and looked, looked at some of the core skills that I got from managing this small business with selling electric floor heating and towel warmers and introduced me into product as data or data as product. And that that gave me the entry point to understanding grocery data and fresh foods data, and then also understanding geospatial data and how retailers use the same kinds of data that people are thinking, oh my goodness, this is so new, we have all this geolocation data. And this was a 20 year old product that they were doing uh, and being able to accurately predict who was going to go into different grocery stores. So that was my entry into that. And I was, I was lucky to go and make that bridge from a hard good product into a data product. And then I think where I still am able to bring, bring that value of the data piece is you have to understand what the question they're trying to answer is. Like, what is the problem? It doesn't really matter that you have great data, like that's important. But if you don't have a good problem to answer or a good, or someone's asking a question and you're asking the right question, the data isn't going to help you. It'll make a nice chart, it'll make a nice spreadsheet, Tableau dashboard, whatever. But if it doesn't answer the question, then what are you selling? Right, yeah, let's, um, let me just go back for a moment because it's interesting that transition from straight up physical product to intangible. (laughs) And uh, one of the things that I say in in my product management class, you know, first lesson is like, let's just talk for a moment about what is product before we start looking at what is the role of the product manager. Because when we think, uh, when we shift toward a product centric mentality, it is, I think, about wrapping uh, a point of view around something. When it's a physical product, it's almost easiest. When it's non-tangible, like data, it's numbers in in a database, that's harder. Can you talk a little bit about how you how you package data as a product or communicate that to customers? I think it, 
it again comes to what are they trying to answer? So for example, Nielsen on the retailer side has two big data products. They have a retail measurement product that tracks sales and it just tells them what was the last week's sales for this region in this place. And that's, that's telling them how their business is going. It's telling them how they're comparing to their clients or to their competitors and how they think they're going to do next week. The other part is a consumer product where they get consumers to scan the products that they buy and that gives them demographic insights and that allows them to inform and explain their, their marketing messages, their packaging messages, their, their, their promotional materials. So if you don't actually have that, that end question in mind, it, it doesn't matter. So you have to start with that. And if the problem is, I want to know how my competitors are doing, or I want to know how I'm doing against my competitors, then it comes to what data will answer that question. And I think that's that's really the the, the way that you do that. So here at, at Civis, where we have a very rich individual level data, data file, and we get to the same point of what is the client looking at trying to do? And then can our data answer that question? And so you have to ask, start with the, start with the end in mind, right? Start with the problem. And then you package the data around to, to answer that problem. Well, this is a good entry then into the product manager role in general, right? For the, the product manager, I talk about them as being the lifeline to the customer. And really their, their one job is to understand what is it that the customer or the user needs and wants? And then later, you know, how do we make this better, more optimized, et cetera? So I guess what's interesting in this world of experiment experimentation is arriving at the question isn't actually all that intuitive on its own. Maybe this is part of what separates a good product manager or good product team from not is the appropriate level of curiosity to say, what do I need to think about in order to, you know, where I'm going with yep. this. It's like, like you're saying, you can't sort of make any use of the data until you understand what the question is that you're, that you're trying to get insight on. How do you even get to the point where you're asking the right questions? Yeah. And I think that's where part of this is like, I, I attend a lot of other team meetings here at Civis and I attend, I try to read broadly around like what business problems people have in general. And then also having a, a vague idea or a rough idea of the kind of person you may be able to target, right? So we've talked previously about sort of the concept of generative research. And that may just be, you think, okay, we think we can sell to media buyers or media planners. Let's talk to them and just ask them what they do all day and spend half an hour, an hour with four or five different, different individuals and see what their job is. Ask them where their pain points are. Ask them what's annoying. Ask them what they wish they could wave a magic wand and get rid of. And out of that starts coming the themes of the kinds of problems that they have. And then you can start narrowing down onto those specific questions. So I think that if you're, if you get to your, you're right, if you get to your question too quick, you either, you may get lucky, but you could end up asking a completely irrelevant or just solving a really small problem that you might get a little bit of traction with, but isn't going to be a sustainable business. It's kind of the, is that a feature or a product kind of question. But starting broad, trying to get a, a depth of understanding on the particular market or the group of users that you're trying to solve for, and then you can start to narrow in from there. Yeah, I, I describe it as strategically surfacing insights or kind of imagine like being an, an archaeologist and you're just like carefully brushing away at the edges. 
or sometimes not so carefully just sort of pushing, putting your finger into a soft spot on yeah. someone's like, Does that hurt? Is so that like, where your pain is? Is that where your pain is? Stop doing that. Yes, there's my pain. It's okay. So if I understand correctly, then in the context of Civis, you're selling, you're selling the solution of data to other companies themselves. So I'm curious about what in your mind is the distinction between how much of this work we should own in-house versus when does it make sense to engage a Civis or a Nielsen or, you know, some other organization that provides that level of service? When is the job of collecting data too big for an organization? So if you think about a company's sort of data lifecycle of the initial part is they have to be able to collect the data. So we have a client that we're about to start working with. They have thousands and thousands of employee surveys, they have thousands of HR interactions, and it's all sitting in either Excel spreadsheets or random databases that are 10 years old, and so it's all over the place. They really can't hire for a data science position because they don't even have the data ready to go in there yet. So they're engaging with us to help on some of that just core data management piece, and we're going to help them put that together and then start to do some data science with them. Now, some of our other clients have been in similar situations and we've helped them get to a point where they have a good data management operation. They have a good data hygiene and processes in place and they know what to hire for now. They can they can see a skill set that says, OK, here is a, a job that a data scientist can do. And we need this kind of skill set. We need someone with this kind of knowledge around these kind of business problems or this kind of algorithm that can help us with that. So they have to have a, a, a level of sophistication in just where their data is and how they're storing it before you can then go out and hire a data scientist. I think that anecdotally, this seems to be a pretty large problem where companies will be, we need a data scientist. You know, get, go get me a data scientist. Right? <laughs> and they, they hire a team of people. Uh, you know, they give them some, some open source uh, you know, access and maybe a, a SaaS database or something. And they can't do anything. You know, and then like 18 months later, they're like, what am I spending all this money on data scientists for? They, they're, they're, they t- it takes me a month to get anything from them. They can't do anything. And you need to have those, the, the factors in place before you really want to engage either with a, a software solution or actually hiring the full-time employees to take advantage of that. Size of organization doesn't seem to actually matter that much. We have organizations that we've been working with for, for years that they were really small when they started. They were you know less than 10 How do you million. define small? <laughs> so they were less than $10 million in revenue, right? They were, <laughs> now and that's not really small, I guess, but you know, so they're, they're at a they're at a five to 50 person organization. Maybe. Right. And they started using our software worked very closely with our internal data scientists. They hired a data scientist or we, we helped upskill some existing business analysts. But then we also have these these massive organizations that frankly just have no idea what's going on. And, and you have, they need someone outside to help them tell the honest and hard truth that then they can start doing it. So right. you can run this discussion with one of the other product managers here. And he was... He, he was floored that this massive, profitable, billion-dollar revenue company didn't have this sophisticated data operation. And frankly, they didn't need one. You know, they knew how to run their business. They were making all the right decisions to get to where they were then. But now they're looking for more. And so they're like, we have this asset. We don't know how to do it. Help us get better at it and go forward. Right. So there's, And there's... There's thousands of companies that are in that exact same situation. So that that kind of 
we've got the business to a certain point. We have all this data. We should be doing something with it. We've probably got an opportunity there somehow. <laughs> right. What do we do? And and that when when the leadership team gets to that kind of question, then they have a decision of do we fully hire a team, which is quite risky if you've got to you know, build the team, get the manager, invest that kind of money, or do we try something for for six months with a, an engagement, whether it's you know with Civis or with one of the other consulting companies or however that works. I love that that the entry point is so it's so fascinating because it's such a real problem, right? Is even in product management at the smallest scale, and I'm talking like four people small. Yeah. One of the things that comes up a lot is if you're going to go out and do customer interviews, have a plan in place for how you're going to organize that information yeah. before you go and do it. So certainly you could see how multiply that across a few different employees or a few different departments or several years, there could be quickly this proliferation of different data. Is there a right way to start to organize your data? Let's say, you know, like how I just bring all of these questions to you. Wade, please answer all <laughs> of the universal. Okay, but no, this is perspective-based, but you know where I'm going. I, I'm starting a company. I, I see that's a problem that I could be facing down the road. Can I do anything early on to prevent myself from becoming, I got these thousand spreadsheets, these thousand surveys? I think there is. You, the way to start and the way to make sure that you don't get into that kind of Excel hell is be aware of the size of data that you're going to have or that you have currently and then make sure that you make the step up at the right time. So if you have dozens of client interviews, Google Sheets is a perfectly fine way to keep your data in handle, right? You can share it amongst the team of four or five very easily. Everyone has access to it. You can put it in nice columns and keep it structured and, and keep it organized. But then when you start having hundreds or thousands of, of website visits and you're trying to bring in Google Analytics or you're doing outbound marketing campaigns and you have hundreds, if not tens of thousands of impressions, then you're getting to a level of, of data scale that, that requires a database, that requires something larger than that. And you don't want to be stuck trying to squeeze all this, this larger data sets into a, an older or inappropriate technology. And, and I think being conscious about the stages of how much data that you're actually going to be having will, will help you get ahead of the game. And you don't blink and then two years later, you've got thousands of Google Sheets or hundreds of Excel spreadsheets and fragile macros that if you know joe leaves the next day nobody knows how to run the macro again that kind of stuff i think and it's there's no real excuse not to do that now it's easy to get onto google cloud platform or aws like these things are available and you can go and start experimenting with these things relatively early that's not to say that you should be spinning up databases when you're in the dozens of people but once you get there, as you get closer to it, you need to be conscious about those moves across. And is that fundamentally a data scientist that, I guess this this shines a light on the question of, you know, are all data scientists created equal? I would imagine there's a specific version of a data scientist who's very good at organizing the inputs and setting up these databases versus somebody whose skill really shines from creating models or, or gleaning insights? Who's the right person to bring in if you do it internally to say, go organize all of this yeah. stuff? We, um, 
one of the things that we've been talking about here and one of the needs that we have is a role called a, a data engineer. And I joke that if more people knew about that term, that job would be even in higher demand than data scientists. Because data scientists, great data scientists, some of the people that we have here, are these amazing unicorns of a variety of skill sets. Product managers like to think of themselves as, as multitaskers and, and you know great utility players, but good data scientists are able to have some level of DevOps. They can set up databases and do this infrastructure. They can code, they can do interfaces, they understand the math and the algorithms and these kind of levels. And and they're a rare breed. Like that kind of level of, of skill set is really, really rare. And they have to be able to talk to people, right? You actually have to get some information out of them. And Which usually immediately goes against <laughs> all of those other skills that we're, you've highlighted. We're very lucky to have a lot of a lot of great people here that um, that have all of those skill sets, but they're they're rare, they're really hard to find. And but getting that data engineer, getting that data in a good place gives you more flexibility for when you have a data scientist who maybe they're good on the math, maybe they're good on the algorithms, but they're they're not as good on the computer science. Or maybe they're good on the computer science and have some idea how to use some of the open source packages, but they don't have the, you know, the the, the infrastructure knowledge that they they might need in a different kind of organization. So it's it's a reason why people are scrambling for you know, quote unquote data scientists because to get that full breadth of skill set, it's just rare. It's just really hard. And even large organizations, they might have two or three people that can do those kind of work. So that's it's a real challenge for people, for sure. So long story short, it's just easier to call you and say, <laughs> can we please engage Civis to make some sense of all of this? So this is the, thank you for the opportunity for the plug, right? <laughs> what, the value of our platform, and I'll, I'll keep this short, is we take care of all that infrastructure pieces so that your data scientists have, they don't have to worry about that setup, they don't have to worry about the security piece, they don't have to worry about who has access to the data. They can get there, switch it on, load their data, and be doing actual value-added data science work in a matter of hours. And the market is at a level of maturity now that you're seeing this phrase and concept of data science platform that even 18 months ago, wasn't really in the vernacular. I used to, when I joined Civis, people were like, well, what do they do? It's like, oh, well, we build a data science platform. And they're like, what is that? Why would I need a platform to do data science? And and now you're seeing it in the Forrester reports and Gartner reports and different kind of analytics, uh, analyst reports that are saying, here is a market for this kind of software category. Right. And it's driven by the, the fact that the, the unicorn data scientists just can't do it all. And, and they're just not, going to exist and companies need software to help them with that. Right. So Civis, if I understand correctly, really has two things going on. One is you provide the consultative um, data team. So you would go to an organization like you described, who's looking to answer some questions that they have, and you would guide them through that. And then you have the platform. Yep. Was the platform initially built simply to support the consulting arm? So it's that, that kind of, it's like base camp. It's first we built it for ourselves, then we realized, oh, other data consultants like us could benefit potentially. Yeah, for, for the listening audience, I'm nodding my head. As my mother used to say, <laughs> she can't hear my head rattle. So I will say, yes, yes, that's correct, Suzanne. Um, we, I wasn't here then, but the, the tools that were being built, uh, it used to be called Console. And they were building these data science tools for the consulting organization about 
18 months or so into the organization's uh, existence, there was a, a, an effective pivot of saying, we are going to create a product. We're going to package this as a product. They hired product managers. They increased, or we increased the, the number of engineers and focused around how do we make this a, an externally facing, clean user experience for people that aren't as experienced as some of our consultants and data scientists here. And while maintaining the consulting business, how do we then grow the, the software business as well? Right. So is that primarily your responsibility then in the product management is to steer the platform and its identity to the market sort of beyond an internal tool? That's the that's the product team's responsibility in general. My my specific role within Civis is more focused around actually some of the data products and then access to the data that we have. But we have a platform team of, of product managers and then we have a data and apps team of product managers and I'm, the, I'm on the data side. So I'm an organization, my data's a mess, I can engage a consulting team to come in, they can clean it up for me, and then ideally we say, look, now you can do it by yourself. It's kind of like the parents, you know, yep. you're riding all by yourself. So that's the goal longer term for the platform is to empower people to manage their data more effectively through this tool. Yeah, that's that's one path. We have found that there, as I said, there's a lot of profitable, well-run organizations that just need a lot of help with their data. And we can get them to a level where it makes sense for them to hire and, and go on with themselves. There's also other organizations that have the data scientists already. They have workflows, but they're needing to be able to scale and expand the impact they have on the organization. So they know how to run all these models. They might have some homegrown solutions, but their managers or the other stakeholders are like, we need to get it out of your laptop. We need to get this out into the field. We need to get this to the people that are actually making the sales and marketing choices mm -hmm. but using your data. And for those kind of for customers, it's really very much a you know, turn the switch on and, and away they go. They can really start using it right away. One of the things that I talk about a lot is how the activities of a product manager changes as the company moves through uh, its life cycle. And this is interesting because I would imagine Civis is much earlier in its life cycle than many of the clients that, that you serve yep. in their own way. Maybe we'll come back to that. But what I'm where I'm interested in is the client's that you're serving, they're at scale. You're talking about, you know, at minimum revenues of 10 million and probably exponentially up from there. In in that world, it's a game of inches, right? One insight that could help you increase lifetime value by a month could translate to millions, if not hundreds of millions more in revenue. Are there some universal questions that companies are asking themselves irrespective of scale or does it simply become every situation is going to be unique my, my approach to that is is very much on the universal side i think that effectively companies are, are trying to answer two to three basic questions especially those that are b2c like dealing and even b2b to a certain extent but the b2c dealing with consumers is that you're either looking for new customers you're either looking to get your existing customers to spend more, or you're looking to keep your existing customers. And across those three kind of business problems, you have then within there the different tactics that you can take. So for example, where should I open my new stores? How can I get new customers with new store locations? What deals should I send to people to get them to come back to my site? How can I increase the share of, of wallet 
with with regards to either food purchases or or laundry detergent purchases or, or whatever it happens to be. And those are all pretty standard business problems. If you take the now where data science comes in and where where we can help and where the kind of work that we we package up. If you take a like a what they call a churn analysis or the flip side of that is a retention analysis of who amongst my customers are likely to stop buying from me or who amongst my employees are likely to quit and what data can I use to help predict that and what how can I then focus my limited resources on the people that I don't want to actually advertise to the people that were going to stay anyway because that's kind of wasted money. I want to advertise to the people that are on the fence, that are that are thinking, okay, I may go somewhere else or I may stay, but if I can get them the right offer at the right time, then I can encourage them to continue the relationship with my organization, however it happens to be. Let's go back. You said something earlier in the conversation about generative research. And last time I was here in Chicago, I actually heard you speak on this topic. So it's interesting. You represent this large-scale data science organization and, and product but you're a real advocate for grassroots qualitative research gathering as well. Talk a little bit, if you will, about your perspective on that process. You know, how do you become effective at conducting? Well, what is generative research, to, to use the term, and uh, how do you become effective at, at conducting it? My definition of generative research is where you're asking wide open questions. You want to get and I guess you want to generate those ideas. You want to look at what is the, the baseline problems, interests, challenges that a potential user or a market is trying to address. That research can be done virtually, so through online research or through just looking through you know, market understanding and market information. But you also get great knowledge having those direct one-to-one conversations. In the talk I gave, I mentioned a company called Respondent.io, and we've used them to, I think, great success. And and what they do is they're effectively a a matchmaker between product teams that need to find someone to talk to and people that want to make 50 bucks on their lunch hour telling them about what they do all day. So it works out great for the the respondent, the person who's actually giving the information. They get some money for, for their lunch hour and just talk about what they do. And it's great for product people, especially when you don't have you know, the, the hundreds or thousands of clients that you can then pick up and call and, and find them. It's worth the money to spend to to get these people. Now, how do you how do you get good at it? Do more of them, right? So just keep going and like re- make sure that your your stakeholders and your your managers understand that you're going to get better over time. So to bullet it out, you really need to prepare ahead of time. Make sure you know what you want to get out of that conversation and what questions you're going to be asking. Even though it's a generative process, that doesn't mean that you're just there and just going to randomly have a conversation with with the individual. You want to make sure that you're focused on identifying what their problems are and getting them to talk as much as possible. So this is a good tip for any kind of user research, but it's to talk as little as, as possible on there and get really comfortable with awkward silences. It's human nature to kind of just dive in and especially you wouldn't want to do it on a podcast, but you just have this, you know, the radio silence, right? The dead air between you and the person on the phone. So maybe we should try that as an experimental episode. (laughs) Just sort of like a standoff of who's going to cave first. I will cave first most times, Suzanne, (laughs) as, as I just said. But so we have great UX researchers here and their 
recommendation and, and teaching to us product managers has been you count to six, right? You take the time and you just count your breaths and eventually the other person starts to talk and that's when they get into what is really bothersome to them because people don't, they don't tell you the good stuff right away, right? You've got to kind of let them, let them do the surface. They're kind of protective and then you've got to like let them dig a little deeper and you're like, what is really annoying about your job? Or what is the big problem that you face? They're like, oh no, it's great. It's really good. I really, it's really exciting. It's like, really? And then you kind of just don't say anything. They're like, <laughs> Well, actually, and then they then you get some good good responses. So yeah, be be quiet, ask short, open-ended questions, and then shut up and get out of the way. Right. Well, what's what's interesting, and what I'd like your perspective on. So I think we certainly talk a lot in this show about the importance of generative research when you're at the idea phase, right, or when you're pre-product market fit is you know, going out and talking to people. I, I have a sound bite I use, which is, you know, pre-work is free work, right? So it's like, go and gain that insight. If you can save yourselves $100,000 by realizing that you shouldn't build this thing, yes. that's a win. Where I think it, it's um, relevant, though, is for larger organizations, because this qualitative research doesn't stop at that phase. So I think what happens is, okay, we've more or less uh, agreed that that's an important um, process for starting up. And then we get bigger, we engage Civis, we have all these cool data platforms, so we get comfortable looking at models, looking at graphs, and we forget about talking to people. What advice could you give to somebody who is a product manager at a large organization like the ones that, they, that are your own clients to remember the importance of qualitative uh, uh, qualitative research and just for getting good at it or, or incorporating it into your daily or weekly rhythm. Yeah, so I had that experience when I was at Nielsen. So we were working on products and we had hundreds of clients and these clients were, were large multinational CPG clients and getting out in front of them is, is really challenging. So you have to just get on as many almost random phone calls as possible and just it's almost like product management by osmosis, right? You just get in amongst the discussions that are happening and that allows you to start recognizing themes over and over again. I don't know if it's Jason Fried or DHH at, at Basecamp. They both have this kind of approach where they don't necessarily have like their prioritized list and they don't go and sort of score and, and make sure that things are getting the one, three and nine kind of low, medium, high values. They, they just listen as much as possible to as many people as possible. And over time, the right things bubble up. To answer your question specifically, if I'm in a large organization, you have to broaden your network as much as possible. It's really important to go to, whether it's the you know, employee research group or employee resource groups that are quite common in, in large group, large organizations, or go to the mixes, go to the the luncheons and the breakfasts, not just for the free food. Don't just talk to the other product managers and engineers. You probably spent a ton of time with them already. Go find the random sales guy that you haven't talked to before or the person who's in, in marketing and, and doing different kind of pieces. And you just have to go up and say hello, right? You have to be, hey, I'm Wade from product. What's going on in your world? And just start talking to people. And that's, that's something that I did at Nielsen. I had a great opportunities at Nielsen to work very cross-functionally which is a ton of fun, but you have to maintain that network. And it's really on the soft side. It's not that your boss is going to just say, oh, here, wait, I've set up 14 meetings for you across the different organization. You've just got to go out and, and hustle. 
Yeah, well, I love that you brought that point up because that was what my question was going to be is, well, first of all, let me frame up what I think uh, you just said there, which is in a startup organization, you're going to go out into the field. You're going to talk to people, flag them down on the street. You're going to use a service like respondent.io. Later, as your organization grows, you'll have actual customers that you can reach out to. But as you grow and grow and grow, your direct access to those people as a product manager gets filtered through a customer service team, a customer research team. So the new kind of get out of the building is more like go somewhere else in the building and talk to somebody who is still in the front lines with those customers and do it of your own accord. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're, that's not, that's not enough, but it's necessary to then build the relationships and trust with those sales teams or with the customer facing client service team so that they know who you are. Nielsen had over a thousand people just working in their Schaumburg office and making sure that people know who you are. So if they have a client call coming up or if you put a one of your random emails out that goes to this large distribution group, they'll be like, oh, that came from Wade. Yeah, I have this question. I can go back to him. And having that that personal interaction is really, really key. And that's going to help you both get that kind of filtered response from the client, but also give you the opportunity and build a relationship to get out actually in front of the client and work that way too. Would you consider Civis to be a startup? <laughs> Are you running through your mind like what the lawyers are like, don't say that. You're not allowed to say that. The, the reason for my hesitation is it gets to the meta question of what is a startup, right? right. Or what is a small business? I think we are a startup for the, because it fits this definition. So to me, the thing that distinguishes a startup from a small business, which is what my first job was at, is a startup is oriented and funded and built towards becoming very, very large, very quickly. And that is, that's inherent in the goal. It's not just to be a good mid-sized consulting and software company for the next 20 years. It's oriented around, we are going to be the data science platform of choice, and we are going to own this new market that is being created. And so I think it's more attitudinal than size, right? We joke about Uber being the world's largest startup, right? Like, I, like they're not the best example at the moment, but having that, and Amazon actually is an even better example, the, the Jeff Bezos theme of that day one, we are still at day one for Amazon, which is nuts because they're billions and billions and billions of dollars, but they're still growing at 30%. And so is Civis a startup? Yes, because our goal is to really own and disrupt this data science platform market. So that's yeah, that's a good one, Suzanne. So. <laughs> well, uh, okay. So I asked the question mostly because you were at Nielsen. I mean, how many people at Nielsen? Uh, there was 35,000 globally. Right, 35,000. They've been around since the 1930s or something like that. They're established. They're yes. a mature company. Yeah. And so I'm curious to hear your perspective as a product manager going from an organization that is very mature, very established, probably very process oriented to being at a startup and how that has changed your understanding of the role, what your day looks like as compared to what it used to look like. I think the... I used to joke, so my first job at this floor heating company, I was the 13th employee and I grew to about 50 people. And then I went to Nielsen, which was 35,000 people. And now I'm at Civis, which is around 100, 150 or so. And the core theme throughout that is sometimes you just need to get people in a room to make a decision. And 
it's easier when there's only 50 of you. But whether you get everybody on the phone and you say, hey, this is the problem, let's hash it out. Like that's the that's the similarity through all of those those different kind of roles and jobs that I've had. The the unique part about the product piece is the the opportunity and the uh, ability to have like a wide open mind at Civis is so much greater. And and I assume at other startups relative to to somewhere at Nielsen. At Nielsen, I had a product. We had a limited development budget. We had the revenue we had to protect. And it's go do that, right? Engage with your client service teams, engage with your salespeople, make sure they understand how best to do that. Work on the contracts as they go through. Do make- everything you can within this tightly defined uh, area that we've exactly. created. For you. Exactly. Actually, the best time I had at Nielsen was for three months where I didn't have a boss. They just, it was like in some weird reorganization and I got to own things for three months. It was the best, best time of my life there. But anyway, you have this very defined set of goals and they are defined by... You know, four layers up the management chain and you really know no idea how they got there but it's like okay i'm going to execute this and maintain the business here the, the goals are open right we have the vision and the, the the mission of what we're trying to do but the exact way that we're planning on doing that there's a, a ton of opportunity for influence and input and discussion which is obviously a lot more fun right that's that's kind of at least for me like there's there's a there's a excitement and risk and challenge to that that you don't get or at least i didn't find in a in a larger organization as far as the actual day-to-day the day-to-day at a at Nielsen or in say for all large organizations was very much phone calls, living in the matrix of the different organizations and talking much more to people that talk to customers as opposed to getting to talk to customers directly. Here, it's much easier for me to walk around a corner and ask the client success person, hey, can I join on your next touch base with XYZ client? And they say, yeah, sure, of course. And then you get to sit and talk and say, hey, I've got this one question. I know it's your time, but do you have five minutes so we can hash this thing out. And that's that's been the big difference. At the same time, and I, I make sure I say this all the time when I talk about working at Nelson, it is a, a great organization. Uh, I learned a ton there. They are an incredibly family-friendly and work-life balance-friendly organization. And depending on where you are at your stage in your life and career and how you want to do that, you can get a lot of value and interest out of, out of working for those larger larger companies for sure. Right. Well, I appreciate that you set up that distinction. And, and I think it speaks to an important topic that we bring up a lot on this show, which is the right product management role for you will depend a lot on where you thrive. Like what I'm hearing from you is you thrive best when nobody tells you what to do, <laughs> when no one's checking your schedule, just like wind me up and let me go. And great. And there are other people who feel, I want the stability, I want the structure, give me that box, and then I will do the absolute best job that I can do inside of it. So knowing what motivates you is probably an important part of making a decision where to end up. Yeah, and I also think there's, if we think of kind of career arcs or different ways of of the jobs that you have throughout your career, I I don't remember where where the reference came from, but I read somewhere that if you look at your career more as, as chapters in a book as opposed to a path, it gives you a lot more forgiveness if you take a sideways move or you do something different. And it's not this continual progression from junior to senior to director to VP to CEO of the company, right? It's, there's, there's having a recognition that, hey, I want to learn about this kind of job or this kind of industry, and I'm going to take a sideways step and go and do that or a backward step or a you know, no step at all is a much more 
kind way to treat yourself when you're thinking about different career paths. But also to your to your original point, Suzanne, I think the knowing and finding where you are good at and where you are going to be comfortable and fulfilled at for whatever time period that happens to be is is a an important thing to think about. And it's a level of maturity that sometimes takes a long time to get to. But once you have it and you think, yeah, I'm I'm in a good spot right now, like that's that's really fun when that happens. And it might only last for 18 months and then you're like, ah, I'm ready for something different. I've, I've got to where I need to be. But getting to that level of you know, self-awareness in your product life cycle, I think is is really important. And it's good to do. Like it's, it, it gives you a, an immense satisfaction when your your mental state, your skill set and your job sort of all line up together is is a really wonderful thing. Yeah, holy trinity. There you go. <laughs> well, since we we kind of organically arrived at, you know, advice for being in the world, what advice would you offer to anyone listening in who wants to make a switch into product? So this could be, hey, I'm doing something completely different, but product sounds like it's for me, or I'm a data scientist and I would like to be a little bit more strategic or a little bit more holistic or, or any number of what I call so these tech adjacent roles. How do you get started in product management? I think the the recommendation I give when I have the coffees and things like that when people ask, there's a, there's a Medium article uh, called Minimum Viable Product Manager. Uh, so that's a good place to start. So that'll get you, is this something actually that I want to do? And, and how many of these, how much of the Venn diagram do I actually fill out? And where do I need to, to, to increase? That's a, that's a good place to start. If you're coming from the marketing side or the business side, which I did, getting an understanding of how to talk to engineers, understand what is needed to communicate those business goals to the engineers, and then trying to get either a side project at your current company or volunteer for a project to, to be able to say, hey, I ran this website build for a nonprofit I'm in, involved in, something that shows that you can stretch yourself a little bit outside of where you are. And then you also have product meetups. There's a great product meetup scene in Chicago. Somehow we have three or four meetups, it seems, one every week if you really want to go to all of them. But start to go to those. There's Mind the Product has meetups here in Chicago and General Assembly hosts host some as well. So get to those, get to meet some other people. Most product managers think that we have the best job in the company. I, I certainly think I have one of the best jobs in the company. So we're always happy to brag about it and tell you about how great it is. Uh, so find some, say, hey, I'm new to this. Do you mind having a coffee? Meet up with somebody and that'll, that should get you started. Cool. What about uh, hard lessons learned? So either ones from your own career or, you know, that you've seen in maybe junior product people where it's like a classic mistake. Yeah. And I think you kind of got me with your comment earlier. I think one of the challenges that I have and a lesson that I need to remind myself of is the wind it up and let it go kind of approach of, all right, we've got the project. Let's, let's get going. And not engaging stakeholders just over communication right not engaging them enough because then you're like excellent we've got it they're on board here we go and you're like three months later hey look at this great thing and you're like eh not really Wade what's going on there you're like damn and, and, and making sure that you keep that communication going and building that support all the way through the process is is something that you you absolutely need you you are not CEO of the product right let's let's sort of get rid of that kind of turn of phrase which I just think is a terrible phrase uh you are you are a a herder of cats to move <laughs> move towards an objective and you need to get as many people as as needed 
in your organization on board to, to be successful. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, we had a guest of the show speak to that some time ago. Same thing, you know, we went very far down a path of building a thing that when we went back to our supervising team, it was like, no, you've, you've missed the boat. But those are the moments where we can inadvertently move into more sort of waterfall type of processes. And I, I say this a lot too, that the better we get at product management, the more susceptible we are to the blind spots because we forget, like in a way when you're new, you have kind of all the steps that you've learned more or less list out and you're like, okay, no, here's where I have to go ask the questions. Oh, no, here's where I have to go and get buy-in. And then later you, you kind of forget yeah. and then you forget to get buy-in from your own team. Can we proceed? bring it back, right? Be agile, come back after two weeks or three yeah. weeks, say, here's what we're finding. Can we still proceed? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, it's a good, it's a good example of the value of checklists. Like when you're first in the job, it's like, okay, step one, step two. And even a, a more experienced product manager, and we use it here for our launch activities is we still have a launch checklist because you don't want to forget stuff and you want to make sure that you get it through and you do everything correctly. And, and having those kind of structured reminders is a, is a great way to make sure you do the complete task as, as well as possible. What, uh, you know, you said you think that you have the best job in the organization. What is it that you love so much about product? You're in the action, right, Suzanne? You're, you're, you get to talk to everybody. You may not have guessed it, but I'm a bit of an extrovert. So <laughs> you get to be part of building something, which is really cool. And you kind of that coordination point of of the organization and you're, you're adding value and you're, you're getting ideas from different people and, and you're making it real, whether it's in a you know, physical floor heating mat or if it's a, a software product or a data product that gets out there. It's, it's, and then when, and then when the clients are actually enjoying it and they give the feedback through client success or whatever, it's like, yes, we, we made the right choice. Then. That was, that was good. So. Since I've been putting you on the spot this whole time, I, normally I ask our guests to provide some recommended resources in the form of books, blogs, podcasts. Maybe you thought I was going to ask you that question. But uh, given how much you're immersed in this data science space, I'm wondering if you have any recommended tools for product teams who want to start getting better at data collection, data management, it can be whatever scale. Obviously, Civis is one of those tools, yeah. but are there others that, that you just personally find are better or you didn't think this was going to be easy? <laughs> did you? Get good, especially if you're a, a SaaS company, a software as a service product manager, get familiar and comfortable with using Google Analytics. Uh, it, it's confusing at start and getting making sure that the pages are attached correctly so on, on that one i would i would recommend which is kind of adjacent to some product management skills something that i'm practicing and, and trying to get better at is is learn sql learn query languages for databases so that way if someone has set up the data you you aren't reliant on other people to do that uh, get, it's pretty straightforward. If if I can do it, I'm sure most of our listeners or your listeners can, Suzanne. It's if you're good at there are listeners. Yes, right, there, right, are there listeners. you go. Um, I'll be back next week. Try <laughs> try the buffet, right? Um, but no. So so get good at those kind of tools, and that's more of a how technical does a product manager have to be? SQL is not very technical, so I, I I'm firmly in the non-technical product manager camp. And if if I can see the value of that, I think that would be the other the other piece. 
I don't know if that answered the question. Yeah, no, I think it's fair. And I love that you also, you bring up that nod because I wanted to mention this earlier. What's so interesting to me about your role is, well, your, your, your strange history and obsession (laughs) with data scientists, but that because you're not a technical person and you're not a data scientist as you describe, and I think a lot of times product people feel, product managers in particular, because we're generalists, we sometimes feel inadequate that we're not the specialist. So, you know, here you are a guy that you're not a data expert. You're an expert on data products, maybe, right? Or an aspiring yeah. expert on on data products. So I think understanding what is the right amount of knowledge that you need to have to be good at your role and not worrying about having all the domain expertise all the time. Yeah, I think this kind of brings it back to that first principles, right? I think that Product managers are generalists, and part of the downside of that is is people kind of don't necessarily see the true skill set that is there. And I think the work that you're doing, Suzanne, with the 100 product managers and, and other kind of groups, are seeing that this is a this is a discipline, right? There is a an art and a craft to asking the right questions, interpreting the data, and and then making a decision and being able to make that decision and saying, we are not going to do this, we are going to do that. And I will own that, and if it's wrong, you can talk to me, and if it's right, you can compliment the engineers, right? Like, that's how it works. And I think that getting those core skills of communication, stakeholder management, engagement with people, asking good questions, is, is something that product managers shouldn't sell themselves short on. We're not just personable people that run good meetings, right? There is a there is a craft, I think, to what product good product managers do. And and sometimes that gets lost in the in the shuffle of the generalist kind of approach. Great, thank you. Uh, last question. Do you have a life philosophy, work philosophy, cheer that you sometimes run through this office and, and <laughs> yell out to, to to guide you, right? I don't yell it out too much, but I think, or at least I hope my behavior reflects it, is I try to I try to ask critical questions. That's thinking about this kind of question from your other your other podcast, Suzanne. I think that's really what I try to get across both either when you're researching, but even more importantly, when you're truly trying to solve the problem is getting to the heart of the issue in a very constructive, polite, not passive, but calm kind of way of saying, are you sure? Is this what our question is? Are we doing the right thing here? And practicing that kind of inquisitiveness and, and asking those those good questions, not tough questions, because that kind of means it's as adversarial, but just good critical questions, I think is, is key to good product management. Can't think of a better way to close. Wade Johnston, thank you so much for being a part of our project. Thanks, Suzanne. Thank you for listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please help us get discovered by leaving a five-star rating and review right from your podcast app. Our mission is to help you excel at product management. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great free resources to help you on your path, including all of the recommendations from our fabulous guests week over week. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. We'll be back next week with an all new episode.